Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned. This podcast contains saucy language of the modern and early modern variety. So plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice you can make. Don't say we didn't warn you. So just to play with it for a minute, Jess, I'm going to ask what shall Cordelia do and you give me an answer and then I will respond with the rest of my line. Okay. Just for fun. Great. What shall Cordelia do? I don't know. Like fuck some shit up. Love and be silent. Uh, duh. Oh, yeah, duh. All right. It's maybe yeah. better than fucking shit up. Yeah. To the Hurly Burly Shakespeare Shaho. I don't know why I said it like that, but it felt like time for change. I'm Jess Hamlet, and also there's another person here. <laughs> Hi, Who are you? And, and I'm Aubrey Whitlock, and together we are w- Hamlet. We're just gonna go with the ha-ha-ha's today. Jesus and, uh, Christ! And this week we're talking about King Lear 201. Yay. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs> we hope you enjoy the show. Oh, Lord. And come back for more. And now that's it. That's enjoy it. the show and done. come back for moho. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. That was yeah. dumb. Okay. Uh, this is a 201 level episode, which means we have different expectations for you. Tell us what they are, Jess. Yeah. Yeah. So when we do, uh, the intermediate level episodes, we think that you probably already know the play that we're talking about. Um, so we don't tell you what the play is about, but like, if you don't somehow know King Lear, uh, or it's been a minute, or you just want to go back and hear the super smart things that we have said about King Lear in the past. Uh, we have a King Lear 101 episode we back do. in season one somewhere. It's yeah. not hard to Again, find. it's in our top 10. Go it's early it. days episodes. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. So for 201s, we go narrow and deep uh, into a couple of topics relating to the play. So today we're talking about adaptation and uh, audience contact, which I've probably delved into before, but I'm going there again because it bears I repeating. I mean, how many times do I talk about adaptation so like like, these are these are things that we yep so that's what we're doing but before we delve into any of that uh we we will revisit a rhetorical device so back when we were doing 101 episodes all the time what we did was uh discuss definitions of rhetorical devices and give examples um but in 201 episodes we talk about ones that we have already talked about but then we talk about them better and more um we so what we're gonna do is we're gonna talk about the uses uh or characterizations of that particular device in this particular place yes. uh and and in in the hopes that by identifying rhetorical traits um of certain characters or just of of the devices themselves uh it can give you a line reading it can give you some characterization it can give you something to latch onto when you have to perform or write about or talk about a a character or a moment in a play or even just like a trend Mm. throughout a play um 
And this week, we're going to revisit, we've probably revisited it before, but I don't care. Um, don't care. I've lost the will to care about that anymore. Uh, so we're revisiting two that go, they go hand in hand, um, Erotima and Aporia. Erotima. Uh, it's Erotima. Whatever. We, we've had this fight before. We have. Okay. <laughs> it's more fun to say because it sounds like erotica. Get yes. on my level, Whitlock. You're, you're right. I I am not on your level. I, I get, will get on there. it. I will endeavor get to get on there. it. Okay. Anyway, carry on. <laughs> um, erotima or erotima. Erotima. Mm. Um, is the proverbial rhetorical question. It's the Greek word for rhetorical question. King Lear is positively rife with rhetorical questions. Um, frankly, most of Shakespeare's plays are. Like, this is not one that's just a Lear thing. What? I know. I know. Um, it, it, the rhetorical question is a form of substitution type of rhetoric. It is substituting a question for a statement, a declarative statement. Um and and there are some really really juicy examples of it uh, from a couple different characters. Um, one being Cordelia in Act One, Scene One, after she has had a falling out with her dad that he brought on all by himself. That's a whole different story. Anyway, um, <laughs> she she is alone on stage uh, and asks the audience, "What shall Cordelia do?" So, and it's um, a moment of my editors tell me. In in Act One, Scene One, it's an aside. Mm. Um, they they tell you it's an aside. Cordelia says, "What shall Cordelia do? Love and be silent." Now, what's interesting about these types of questions, and I'll and I'll go into this in a little more detail when it's my turn to monologue for, about a few things, um, is that if you give it a moment, if you wait for an answer, um, the character still supplies like a response. It still works. Um, so, so there's a rhetorical question there. Um, and of course a rhetorical question, um, you don't necessarily expect someone to produce an answer or, or you do, but you don't need them to voice it. Right. That's the whole, that's kind of the whole idea of a rhetorical question of Irotima. Um, you're allowing folks to fill in an answer on their own. And that's kind of the point. Uh, another great example of, repetition of this device uh, comes later when Edmund, sexy, sexy Edmund, the bastard, is alone with us, uh, telling us about how he's been with both Goneril and Regan. And he says, which of them shall I take? Both, one, or neither? Hmm. Neither can be enjoyed if both remain alive. Oh, Edmund. Um, right. So he's he's asking these questions in in quick repetition. Again, he may pause for a reply. He doesn't have to. Um, he can allow you to supply the answer yourself. Um, but I think if you if you look all the way through this play, you will find these kind of moments. Um, and then ask yourself, you know, should I wait? Should I wait for a response? What would happen if I did? Um, but I'm getting ahead of myself because that's kind of what I want to talk about uh, when it's my turn today. So in other words, that's our device revisited, Erotima. Or erotima, if you're feeling erotic today. Mm, you know, I always am. <laughs> the, the rhetorical question. Are we feeling erotic today? That's a rhetorical question. I was about to literally answer it, so I'll just <laughs> let it sit in the Just in let the it world. sit there. Supply your own answer. Yeah. Great. All right, Jess, um, talk to us about adaptation. So longtime listeners of the podcast will remember... Probably, I hope, um, 
this weird Victorian novel that I've been working with since the beginning of this podcast. Um, it's it's a, a novel set in India uh, during the time of British rule, the Raj. Um, and it took over my life two years ago and now has resurfaced uh, in my dissertation. So we're about to hear some more about it. Uh, it's a very Shakespeare-heavy novel. It's called Confessions of a Thug. It's written by this guy, Philip Meadows Taylor. Um, and it's it's uh, a novel of India. And it's very, it's very Orientalist and very paints India as like the dangerous, seductive, exotic country of horrors and delights and sensual pleasures and you know that kind of thing and we've talked about it we talked about it in the as you like it episode and i'm sure several times since then because there's so much shakespeare in this novel so very much like it's something like 58 ish chapters um and about half of those chapters begin with an epigraph from one of shakespeare's plays um and I am writing about it in my dissertation. So what I want to talk about today is one, one single one of these epigraphs. You might surmise that, in fact, um, this is an epigraph from King Lear. Wild, I know. What I am about to share with you all uh, is um, a part of my dissertation, I guess. Uh so there it is. So um, the Philip Meadows Taylor is uh, the, the author. Um, and one of the most baffling epigraphs that he uses comes when he takes Lear's death speech to introduce uh, a key moment about halfway through the book. So the epigraph reads in full. No, no, no life. Why should a dog, a horse, a rat have life and thou no breath at all? Oh, thou wilt come no more. Never, 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 never. If you are a sharp-eared listener, you will have counted four nevers. And if you know this play, you will know that there are five nevers. Um, and for two years, I've been going, what the fuck about that epigraph? Uh, and then I had to write about it. And so I had to, like, try to answer the question of, like, why the fuck would you ever cut that fifth never? Um, so let me tell you about why I think that fifth never is cut. So in this chapter, the main character, Amir Ali, um, is he's the leader of a gang of thugs. And what these thugs do is they go around the countryside and they meet travelers and then they kill travelers uh, and take all of their goods and then go home and pretend that they are merchants and it's like a, it's a crime syndicate. Okay. So Amir Ali uh, finds a new target. His name is Subzi Khan. Subzi Khan has in his company a young woman who is one of his slaves. This is important to know. Um, and she loses all control after the Khan's murder. The, the narrator describes it, you know, what a piercing shriek escaped her when she saw, when she saw what had been done. I will never forget it. So on and so forth. Normally what would happen uh, also, thugs existed in real life. I don't know if they still do. FYI, this is like a real thing, a real practice. Um, normally what would happen is a thugs, a band of thugs would 
kill their target and then kill all of their target's attendants, you know, slaves, servants, grooms, uh, horse people, anyone who was with them, they would murder them all. However, in this case, uh, Amir Ali's friend, Sephiris Khan, really thinks that the girl is so beautiful and is... He uses this as an excuse to spare her life. So Sephiris Khan says to the girl, he says, I have no wife, no child. Thou shalt be both to me if thou wilt rise and follow me. Why waste further thought on the dead? Which is also like a little creepy, be both wife and child to me, but that's like a whole separate can of worms. So uh, they take the young woman with them. She cannot be consoled. She cannot be quieted. And they struggle back and forth. And then finally, Sephiris Khan has to kill her himself to avoid detection. It's like a whole thing. It's a big problem. Um, And it changes him fundamentally. And he decides to leave the gang of thugs. So he they get home, they divide their booty, and then he gives his booty away, which like, ha 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 booty. But there's no there's no better word for what I spoils, I suppose. Um, He distributes it among the poor members of the band and then like goes away and lives as a hermit. That's the the plot that's happening in this chapter. Um, The Lear epigraph that heads this chapter plays on the sympathies of the reader, asking them to consider the humanity of these characters, even though they are murderers, right? So Lear's full speech over Cordelia's body is as follows. And my poor fool is hanged. No, no, no life. Why should a dog, a horse, a rat have life and thou no breath at all? Oh, thou'lt come no more. Never, 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 never. Pray you undo this button. Thank you, sir. Do you see this? Look on her. Look, her lips. Look there. Look there. And then he dies, right? That's the whole speech. So applying this speech to the chapter's contents, I think, makes the events murkier instead of clearer, which is a masterful complication of the plot and the characters that the author, Philip Meadows Taylor, is, it's his hallmark in this novel. The immediate temptation is to cast Taylor's characters as Lear and Cordelia, but who is who, right? So the slave girl is the Lear to Subzi Khan's Cordelia, but then she becomes the Cordelia to Sephiris Khan's Lear, and then he in turn becomes the Cordelia to his fellow thugs's Lear. The shifting Cordelia's and rotating Lear's complicate this narrative in ways that refuse to bow to a good versus evil binary. Taylor again and again resists making his characters unlikable, even though they are carrying out death and destruction at every turn in this novel. However, why the fuck would you cut the fifth never? Why? Why would you do this? Shakespeare's line is a perfect example of trochaic pentameter, right? Providing metrical dissonance at the moment of Lear's death. Taylor's purposeful omission is baffling, unless perhaps he is trying to introduce further dissonance into his narrative. I think perhaps, uh, that the lost never is intended to wrongfoot the reader in the same way that Sephiris Khan's departure and renouncement of Thuggy is intended to surprise the reader. Much like an unresolved chord progression, the missing never unsettles the Shakespearean-minded reader and warns them that something is coming, that perhaps they will not find uh, a satisfactory resolution in this chapter. Right. Even halfway through the novel, Taylor resists allowing his readers to paint his characters with the same brush. He resists letting them think that they know what his characters will do next. He resists letting them assign his characters to the good versus evil binary. 
Lear's function as an epigraph here, then, I think, uh, is to signal death to the reader on multiple levels. First, of course, is the death distributed to the travelers that Amir Ali's tribe encounters and the young girl who is preserved and then dispatched. The second death is more nebulous and can be read as the loss experienced by the thugs at the departure of Safur's Khan. Taylor also uses this interlude to take a break from Amir Ali's voice and allows uh, his omniscient, not omniscient, uh, his his rarely seen other narrator, English narrator, to break in for several pages of pontificating about Ali's life of crime and his nefarious deeds. The disappearance of Amir Ali's voice, though temporary, is another kind of death for the reader because it allows the English narrator to speak uninterrupted uh, and is one of Taylor's most obviously pro-English moves in the novel and reminds the reader that to know and to understand Shakespeare, to be English, is is superior to being a murderous Indian and quietly reinforces the colonial mission. Hi, Becky. Whoa. Do you have feelings about Orientalism as well? And King Lear? But like, why? <laughs> I find it, I think it's kind of amazing that one little thing, one little omission um, yeah. kind of sparked this this journey for you. Yeah. Which just goes to show you, kids, be careful what you read yeah. <laughs> when you're in a PhD program. Yeah, this was um, the first thing I read in... Uh, a Victorian literature seminar that I took at the beginning of the second year of my PhD. And it just, it's, it's, it stuck with me for, you know, this was two and a half years ago now, or maybe just two years. Yeah, it's just two years. It was two years ago. You know, I, I read it and I saw, I saw that epigraph for the first time and immediately it was like, where the fuck is the fifth never? Because that line's fucking iconic, right? Like yeah. iconic. Yeah. It is one of the most famous lines. Um, and so then, you know, the question is, okay, well, was he working from an edition of Shakespeare that left off that fifth never? Was he remembering it from a 19th century production that he would have seen that omitted the fifth never for whatever reason. Like why? Mm-hmm. Um, I've not been able to answer either of those questions satisfactorily. Yeah, I was just going to ask. Yeah, uh, I have not. I've not found a, a 19th century edition of Lear that cuts it. Um, I cannot say, you know, I can't say anything about what any production he might have seen ha- right. has done. Right? right. There. I think there are more questions to be asked than I have possible answers. Um, but this was, this was the stickiest part of this chapter for me. And it took me ages. Like this is the last chapter of my dissertation talks about British India. Um, it is the first chapter that I wrote and it really wrote itself. I exceeded my word count by thousands of words. Um, and it just it just poured out of me. But then this, I wrestled with it for basically the entire time. It was the one of the earliest things I wrote in the chapter and then had to keep coming back to it and being like, I don't know why you would fucking cut this fifth never. Like, what is it doing in the text? How is it making me feel? How might it have made a 19th century reader feel? Right. Um, yeah. So this guy, Philip Meadows Taylor, who wrote this book, he he was a, a pretty successful novelist. Um, and this novel, ooh, I, I might be immediately about to misspeak, but I believe that this novel was read by Queen Victoria. Um, 
although it might have been the other one that he wrote about India. Um, the other the other one that I read that he wrote about India. I think he wrote a lot of novels about India. Um, anyway, it's it is something that I've been struggling with for two years and now again for several months. So that's what it is. That's what I got. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I think it's um, interesting the conclusions you have drawn. You know, yeah. Oh, God, uh, the they were idea, hard, right? <laughs> yeah. And well, the idea of dissonance, um, I think, I think is an astute one, you know, mm-hmm. for uh, for somebody outside, totally outside of this and who has not read that book. Right. It makes sense. You know, that that argument not being able, of course, mm-hmm. to like you say, you know, know what sort of productions he might have seen or right. and if something was deliberately cut or if. Maybe he heard an actor misspeak and miss a right, the right. fifth never. You know what I mean? Like, there's no way. There's no way to know some of that stuff. So it's that's always the, the challenge, isn't it? Like taking what you've got in a text mm-hmm. and and figuring out why it happened. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, and what it's doing. Right, and us. also like, how much do I care about authorial intent? Like, how much do I yeah. care what he intended to do with this right. epigraph versus what it is doing now? Yeah, right. You know, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, absolutely. So that's that's what I got. Um, how about you tell us about Edmund some okay. more now? Cool. So we're going to return to Edmund briefly. Um, So I'm going to, first of all, preface all of this um, by saying my monologue today is sponsored by (laughs) my colleague Leah Wallace and her paper at the Blackfriars Conference, um, Pause for a Reply, a How-To Guide for Audience Activation. Um, And if anybody listening to this who knows Leah knows that like her whole academic research thing is about like eye contact and audience audience contact and what that does to your brain and all sorts of stuff. Um, She brings up the point, basically the point of this whole presentation was that if you pause to when a question is asked, right. When a say in the merchant of Venice, you know, if you prick us, do we not bleed, et cetera, that moment. um, And you actually wait for an audience member to respond. It amplifies the moment you know there's that there's always pushback I think especially in modern theaters where the lights do turn off on people on the audience um, and we're able to better spotlight actors there's that notion that if you if you take things to the audience it diffuses the energy but uh, literal neuroscience that that Leah has studied um, and she is by no means a neuroscientist. I'm just going to put that out there. Um, but the research she has done indicates that when you make eye contact with people for a certain amount of time, it doesn't diffuse energy. It actually creates energy. It it builds energy in the room and connection and community. Um, and I think, you know, she argues, of course, that to do that sort of thing in a space like the American Shakespeare centers at the Blackfriars where the lights are on all the time, you know, universal lighting. But I would argue that even in a uh, quote unquote traditional theater setting, you can make some of these connections. You can make eye contact with people and wait for a response and activate your audience and see what happens. And, you know, a lot of the time people are just going to give you that kind of deer in headlights, like, Oh, I don't know me. What, you know, and that's fine, you know, and you can respond to that. Um, but what happens when you actually get a response and, and that's where Edmund comes in sort of by accident, not, not really because this play is so profound in its rhetorical questions and questions to the audience, but more because of, um, 
because of the theater camp that we run here every summer. Uh, And what happened a couple summers ago in 2016 during a production of King Lear in which uh, Patrick Earle, who played Edmund, came out, you know, he's got sort of his, this is his like triumphant moment where he's going to tell us all about, I've been with both ladies. Mm -hmm, Good for me. Ain't I great? Um, And in my text, I'm looking at the new Oxford today and it just breaks it down by scene, which is annoying. So it's scene 23 or rather... Act five, scene two, um, I think is where technically we're at. Um, so Edmund, do you want me to look up a? Oh uh, no, no, it's okay. okay. I'm just for people who are listening. Okay. Right. Um, so oh sorry, it's scene. It's the end of scene twenty-two. So it's act five, scene one. Edmund comes out and he says, "To both these sisters have I sworn my love, each jealous of the other as the stung are of the adder. Which of them shall I take? Both, one, or neither?" Neither can be enjoyed if both remain alive. To take the widow exasperates, makes mad her sister Goneril, and hardly shall I carry out my side, her husband being alive. Now then, we'll use his countenance for the battle, which being done, let her that would be rid of him devise his speedy taking off. And as for his mercy, which he intends to leer into Cordelia, the battle done, and they within our power, shall never see his pardon. For my state stands me on to defend, not to debate." So that's what he says, right? Um, and in the in our production in 2016, it just so happened that the night that that performance was being filmed for the archives, um, our campers were also in the house, in, in the audience. Um, and anybody who's been in the audience with a bunch of really invested Shakespeare nerds, um, be they grad students or teenage campers, knows that there's already a little more energy in the air because the kids are already so invested. Um, but it, it just so happened that when Patrick Earl came out to do this speech, or rather he was left alone on stage to do the speech, and he he asks, he gets to the, he gets to the quick succession of four questions at the beginning. He says, which shall I take? Both? One? Or neither? And he he gives just enough of a, a hint of space to where one of our campers, you can't see her, but you can hear her on film in our archives now. She shouts, kill them both and take their money. <laughs> and it was um, amazing. Everyone in the room heard it. Of course, everyone could see her. Patrick Earl could see her. Um, and you can see this moment uh, on his face where he's kind of taking it in and he's like, mm-hmm, yeah. And he's thinking about it and he hasn't really broken character, which like, God bless him for not. Uh, and then he answers her with, neither can be enjoyed if both remain alive. And then he went on with his speech, um, which I, I find one, you know, good for him. Uh, that's so hard to do as an actor um, to to maintain your character and have the presence of mind enough to to use the text that you're given to as an answer, you know, as a response. Because, I mean, what else are you supposed to do? You know, you don't want to go and make spear everywhere. People hate that, um, especially not with a play that everybody knows. So so he was able to do that uh, with one of our you know, cheeky campers. That's not a normal response on a normal night in the Blackfriars Playhouse. That is, you know, a a rare thing. Um, A hilarious thing, but a rare thing. And uh, and I, I, Leah used it in her paper. She used that anecdote to talk about how when we, when we leave room 
um, for an audience response, how how it enlivens, how it activates the room, and how really it elucidates parts of the text that maybe we've forgotten. Um, another another example of this, not from Lear, um, that we that sort of become lore at the Playhouse is uh, when Ben Kearns some years ago, Benjamin Kearns was playing uh, Hamlet in uh, when. I think it was during the Actors Renaissance season. I don't know what year, but uh, he was playing Hamlet in the Q1 Hamlet that that we did. Um, this is even before my time. I wasn't here when he did this. But um, there's that moment in Act 3 where Hamlet, you know, has Claudius alone, you know, and Claudius is praying and Hamlet. Hamlet in Q1, the text literally says, Hamlet asks, and shall I kill him now while he is purging of his soul? Right. It's a very direct question. Uh, and Benjamin would always take it to a gallant. He he would direct that as a moment of audience contact. And this one time, there was a kid on stage. Uh, I think it might have been a student matinee. It might not have been. But in, regardless, there was a kid that he took this question to. And the kid said, yeah, he's got to die. He just out loud said, yep, he's got to die. And of course, if you know Hamlet, you know that Hamlet does not kill Claudius in that moment. Um, and and it Ben, you know thought about it and he was like well you know hamlet goes on to kind of answer um and he says nope that would be scanned you know and he goes through then hamlet gets a chance to go through the logic of should i well no he's praying so i don't want him to do that you know i don't want him to go to heaven um and and i think if you if you look for those moments you will find actually that shakespeare's taking care of you like even if that kid had said no don't kill him you know, don't kill him now. Don't. Mm -mm, nope. Now's not the right time. Hamlet can then go on to be like, yeah, that would be scanned. Uh, I don't want to send a soul to heaven. Right. It works either way. I would argue that this moment with Edmund could work as well. Like, um, Jess, I'm going to ask you these four questions in quick succession, and I want you to give me a different answer each time and let's see what happens. OK, okay just just I'm for ready. fun. I'm ready. Yeah. yeah. So you be that cheeky camper. OK, cool. Got Which it. of them shall I take? Both. Uh, the pretty one. One. No. Or neither? No, both. Well, neither can be enjoyed if both remain alive. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Let's try it again. Which of them shall I take? Both? The hot one. <laughs> one? Yeah, no. Neither? Threesome. Neither can be enjoyed if both remain alive, though. Mm, like, but mm. threesome. <laughs> but threesome with the sisters cheeky beggar yeah so i think i think the it, it works right no sure. matter what response you get it works and then you've got more people in the room invested and he's and he's not soliloquizing loftily in the air anymore he's right, like right, 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 right. making a decision right there in front of people um so really i don't have much more than that i'm gonna i'm gonna pull a jess hamlet this week and be like look at this thing in the text isn't it cool isn't it awesome how you might be able to use it um so I, I think, you know, make more of those moments. Uh, it's scary. It's really hard to do just yeah. to wait for a response. And like some actors I know really just don't like improvising. <laughs> they don't like that unknown and going off script in any kind of way. And it's, it is, it's unnerving. Um, but I think if, if you are brave enough to try it, it's very rewarding. So thank you to Leah for, of course, keeping that in everyone's attention. Um, cause I want to, you know, give credit where credit is due here. Um, and thank you to Patrick Earl for, <laughs> for being a great anecdote. Uh, but yeah, that's what, that's what I got, you know, uh, ask the audience real questions and wait for a reply and see what happens. That is my invitation to you. I can take it. 
So let's move on to our how to grad school segment. Yeah. How to um, how do that grad school do? Yeah, yeah. So so uh, you know, occasional segment here for two hundred one episodes where we talk about like grad school specific topics, um, because that is a, a lot of our listenership. Um, so this week we want to talk about competition, which is not unique to grad school, but is in fact uh, everywhere. It's a thing that happens, and it is insidious, and it sucks. Um, You know, if you are, I mean, frankly, part of any kind of professional culture, um, you are, I'm sure, familiar with uh, competing with your colleagues, with colleagues trying to tear you down, with this, you know, this culture of backbiting and uh, always needing to be on top and needing to be the best and needing to put others down to point out how great you are, mm-hmm. right? This happens everywhere. Um, it is particularly destructive in grad school. Um, I have yeah. been the recipient of a whole lot of uh, it. Um, I certainly compete with others. Uh, that's human nature, right? But um, I, you know, when we get new grad students into our program, um, I, I generally have two pieces of advice for them. And the first is don't buy into the culture of fetishizing how busy you are don't do that fucking take time to sleep and work-life balance and don't work weekends and that kind of thing right um and also like someone else's success does not reflect on you in any way so don't play that game right don't compete with others and don't let them compete with you because it it hurts everyone so I, what do you, you have been in grad school. You've been in a lot of grad school. What are your yeah. thoughts? Yeah. Uh, I think you're right that, that the urge is always there, at least for me. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I have kind of a weird relationship with competition because I, like a lot of people, you know, grew up playing, playing team sports sure. and, and enjoying uh, certain aspects of, of that kind of competition. Sure, sure. So like, I, I feel like there are aspects of competitiveness that kind of keep you motivated. Absolutely. Um, you know, and, and having a, a friendly rival, you know, in, Super in your program Super or even someone yeah. not in your program, but like someone that you, you know, constantly like they are, they are on your level or even, you know, better than you in some way. And you yeah. want to, you know, just, ah, I gotta, I gotta beat them, you know? Um, but it's a, it's a, it's a tenuous line to walk, you know, between, between that kind of healthy and, and collegial competition Mm -hmm. and competitiveness and, and then like uh, flattening someone else or, or blowing out their candle to make yours burn brighter. Yeah. Yeah. There's a very, very fine line. There's a difference between, oh, well, many other peers in my program right now who are at the same level that I am at are publishing in peer-reviewed articles. So I need to do that too. So let me hustle to do that versus, well, 
I just heard that my friend got a shitty rejection from a journal and that makes me feel good about myself because it means that they're not publishing so that they're not making me look bad. Right. Like there's it's a it's two sides. Right. Or like they failed. So there's room for me to squeeze in. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's an opportunity for me. Exactly. Like it's really hard, especially for the academic job market right now, because that is a zero sum game. Um, And there are no jobs. There are. Do you know how many jobs there are posted for early modernists in English programs this year? Four. Okay. Four in the whole fucking country. Um, so and newsflash there's way more of us than that so like way more of us yeah um so it's i mean it's it's hard out there for a gangster um (laughs) thank you for laughing at that but it's it's i you know i feel like i have spoken about this previously on the podcast i hope you're not hearing it for the first time right now coming out of my mouth um but i felt really uh bullied in my master's program, in our master's program by my peers for doing the work that I was doing. Um, I did not feel like I was competing with any of them, which is not that like, oh, they weren't on my level, but that I, from day one, didn't want to be a theater person, right? That was never my, that's not my trajectory in life. I want to be in a library, in a classroom, behind a stack of books. That's what I want to be. And there mostly weren't those people in our cohort, right? It was like me and then later sort of Patrick. Um, But he is also very comfortable being a theater practitioner and I am not, right? Mm -hmm. So I really felt like I was kind of in a class on my own, um, which I don't mean to sound in like a, an elitist way and like a no one else is on my level kind of way. Just that I, I, I really felt that my goals were not the same as everyone else's. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, you know, I went and I wrote my thesis and I came back on the first day of our second year and I had a full draft done. Uh, and when people found out, I got shat on super shat on and it was really hard for a whole year to hear people constantly saying oh well Jess is just making us look bad and well that Jess she's just she's trying to make the rest of us you know feel like we aren't doing the work that we need to be doing and it's like no that's not at all what I'm doing at all and what I'm doing does not reflect on you in any way and maybe worry about yourself and worry a little bit less about me because we all have different working styles. So calm your nuts. That has happened significantly less since I've been at Alabama, uh, partly because there are much fewer of us. More fewer? No, much fewer of us. More fewer? There are more <laughs> are fewer words? of us. I have 75% of a PhD in English. I know how to word smart good. I mean, you know, my cohort here is four. And right. once we're out of coursework, I only ever see one of them. Right. So it's a lot harder to compete with people because there's, yeah, it's really yeah. isolated. And there's certainly there are fewer people to compete with. Yeah. Um, all of that said, there is someone here who uh, sees me as their own personal benchmark and that they need to be better than me at all times. Um, it is slightly hilarious. <laughs> They're very invested in what I'm doing and when I'm doing it. And I'm just like, okay. <laughs> 
Yeah. We're, we're all in the same boat. And again, our professional goals are very, very different. So like, what are you doing? Anyway, um, that was maybe a, a bit of a digression. Um, but I guess like there's no way really to avoid it. It's yeah. it's being aware of how it makes you feel and what you want to do with those feelings, right? Yeah. Like use it productively and not um reductively and also like someone else's success does not reflect on you at all. At all. Right? Yeah. No one is publishing at you. No one is getting jobs at you. Uh, Stop publishing at me. (laughs) Right? Like no one is getting, (laughs) writing really great seminar papers at you. No one sits down and is like, you know what? On this assignment, what I really want to prove is that I am better than Joe who sits next to me in class. Yeah. I mean, maybe I guess some people probably do do that, but like that's not the point, right? That's not the why we're here. We're not here to prove anything other than like we have ideas that are worth talking about yeah and there's there's room at the table for most people yeah well and on the other side of that because I was on that journey with you um Mm -hmm. in our Mm -hmm. in our cohort I Mm -hmm. think um realizing you know uh if you are a person who leans toward competitiveness and you kind of need that or or feel that a lot Mm -hmm. um I think you know, being aware of how an offhanded comment can right. can egg on that spirit of competition when it's unintentional. And I because mm-hmm. I know um, I was one of those people who was like, oh, God, that Jess making us look bad, you know, um, mm-hmm. and I did not realize at the time that an offhanded comment was hurting your feelings. And I'm really sorry about that, you know, because I again, I don't take it personally. Right. Like I make jokes about stuff and I'm just sort of a glib person. So right. like, did I believe that Jess was making me look bad? No. <laughs> Cause I wasn't. No, I, no, no, you weren't. Yeah. No. Um, you know, uh, but, but I realize how, uh, now and hearing you talk about it, um, how, how I played into that. And I'm sorry about that. Um, I mean, you know, for, for the record, you were not, one of the worst offenders because like like you you are a, a glib person and i i can read tone right I, <laughs> yeah. I don't, you're not a robot yeah I there don't, were rumors I don't, there were rumors that you're a machine <laughs> i mean i am a machine yeah uh no i don't recall there ever being uh any comment that you made that made me feel bad about myself it was certainly other people and in other venues yeah but but also you know realizing it's it's helpful for someone like me who is glib and says offhanded shit um to know that you know my words hurt people sometimes Mm -hmm. or or can play into that without intentionally doing that um at the same time i had another thought and then it just went right out of my brain and i lost it where did it go i don't know did you check up your butt (laughs) No, it's not where I store my thoughts, Jess. <laughs> Could have fooled me. Oh, you set Rude. yourself up for that. I did. I did. It's why my butt's so articulate. <laughs> That's where girl. all my ideas are. <laughs> I don't like it when your butt talks. It's all that body language. Oh, my Ooh, girl. Now I'm oh talking about your fine ass. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know what that thought was. It's gone now, yeah. it's gone forever. But I mean, um, I guess point made. Yeah. All all of the points are, you know, I guess it all boils down to just like think before you speak and be gentle with yourself and others. 
Yeah, because and it sucks, too, because the industry kind of makes you compete with people. Yeah. So, like, you're being pushed toward it. So it yeah. takes, like, hyper vigilance all the time to, yeah. to get away from that. Absolutely. And yeah. I, I don't want to sit here and make it sound like I've got the system cracked and I am never competitive and I'm never jealous of other people because that's yeah. a fucking lie. No. You know, I am a human and I get it wrong frequently like everyone else. But yeah. Um, you know, I've I've been in this for a, a while now and I've I've learned to uh recognize when I'm going in the wrong direction and what uh what things will spur me on to the bad um mm-hmm. behaviors and habits that I don't like in myself. Uh and then, you know, the next day I try again. Right. Yeah. It takes yeah, it takes constant conscious effort. Yeah. 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 It's a it's a challenge. It's a whole other level of challenge on top of yep. being a grad student in general. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Great. Yeah. 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 So. <sighs> Moving on. We're going to gossip now. Yeah. <laughs> Which seems antithetical given what we've just talked about. Yeah. But uh, it's good gossip. It's good. It's good things. Well, so, it's, well, I kind mean, of. <laughs> it's productive. Yeah. I'm not um, good. Um, mm-hmm. Well, it's yeah. not like gossip gossip. Like, oh, my God, did you hear about Aubrey's butt and how articulate it is? Oh, my God. Did you hear that Aubrey's butt is so good? Because Aubrey's butt is so good. Yeah. And it's yeah. like the best butt. It's the best butt. Um, <laughs> anyway. So uh, the students at Williams College in mm-hmm. Boston, is that where it is? Massachusetts. No it's in Massachusetts, uh, but I don't know exactly where in Massachusetts. Uh, have called for a boycott of the English department there um, okay. because uh, they they say that the English department is sort of actively racist wow. and hostile to students of color. Um, so they have they have a, a website. We're gonna throw up a, a link in our show notes, not yep. to their website, but to the the um, the write up in Inside Higher Ed. But what they say is, we, the undersigned students of Williams College, pledge to an indefinite boycott of all English classes that do not take seriously the matter of race. That is, those classes which do not include more than a token discussion of race and more than a token number of writers of color. Essentially, it it appears to be uh that they they also want like a new chair of the english department because they're just not getting critical engagement with race um Mm -hmm. and that is a problem in literature uh they're also alleging that several white professors have used the n-word um while talking about literature and Mm -hmm. and not in a not in a way that like we're discussing a work of literature that uses this word, but that I'm just going to use this word, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, you know, is a problem. Yeah. It's a bit um, of a problem. So you can read all about it. It's like a thing. I f- absolutely think that uh, it is worth supporting. Um, you know, we, in this country are at a moment of racial reckoning, I think. Yeah. It's, we, we have not solved racism. In fact, Obama did not cure us of, what? of that. Ugh, um, thanks, I know. Obama. We, we are not living in a post-racial society. Uh, thanks for nothing. Right. It's, um, 
you know, and and this is well, we'll throw up the link. I yeah, go go have a look. But like um, we stand with you, Williams yeah. English students. Yeah, you know, um, solidarity. English departments, I think, uh, in many places have problems with representation. Yeah. Um, you know, English departments tend to be pretty white. They tend to be pretty male. Yep. Uh, canons of literature also generally tend to be pretty white and pretty male. Um, and that's something that a lot of people are working really hard to change right now. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Shout out to Williams College. Yeah. Keep fighting good for them fight. for yeah, good for them for doing something about it. Yeah. 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 Um, well, on a shout out of a different note, mm-hmm. uh, we got we got some contact through our website from actor Brendan Kennedy, who is cast as uh, Hal and then Henry Five in the Brave Spirits Theater uh, Histories Rep that's going to be producing the entire history canon uh, of Shakespeare's plays uh, from 2020 through 2021 22 uh it's it's a a big undertaking and a big project um but he reached out to us uh to say hello and to invite us to come and see the shows when they open and i just wanted to say thanks for being a listener thanks for contacting us please stay in touch um i know you know jess doesn't live anywhere near the dc area but i do so i will do my best to to get over there and and see as many of your shows as i can because i i unlike jess love the history plays and would love to see them. Uh, and this, <laughs> I hate this. <laughs> and uh, yeah, well, I love most of them. I should say I don't love them all, but I love most of them. I hate pretty much all uh, of them. I know three exceptions. I know. Uh, <laughs> uh, and of course, want to support you know fellow Mary Baldwin uh, S and P grad um, Charlene Smith. So uh, mm-hmm. so I will do what I can to get out there and, and represent you guys. Just wanted to shout you out. Say thanks for thanks for getting in touch. And you too could get a shout out if you get in touch with us. Oh ye listener, ye mm-hmm. indistinct mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. listener out there in the void. Yeah, uh, we do yeah. Uh, try to respond to <laughs> most yeah. emails. We yep. we get a fair few of them. So apologies mm-hmm. if we don't get back to everybody but yeah but we do read them all we do yeah read them. and when you say nice things about us then we shout you out yeah so if you it's want a, a shout out say nice things about us it's a quid pro quo yeah. if you will if right. that term hasn't been too poisoned lately Ugh. anyway thank you so much for listening everyone we hope you leave this podcast more informed than when you started tune in next week we're going back to a 101 episode and it's gonna be the revengers tragedy all the revenge all the tragedy fucking good so fucking good shit i gotta read it now yeah you do (laughs) all right whamlet out whamlet out If you enjoyed our podcast, please tell your friends, rate us, leave us a review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For show notes and other fun stuff, you can visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. Yeah, get in touch with us. Tell us what you're working on and thinking about. Email us at holla at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can also find us at hurlyburlyshakes on Instagram. Or at Hurley Burley Shake, no S, on Twitter. The Hurley Burley Shakespeare Show is produced and edited by Aubrey Whitlock and Jess Hamlin. All opinions you heard are strictly our own and not affiliated with the institutions we represent. That's a 
actually maybe not better than fucking shit up, but it's more uh, in line with what it's, Shakespeare. It's perhaps more on brand for intended. Cordelia for sure, for sure. <laughs>